I have a message this morning about guilt and forgiveness, a message about renewal in God's grace. Uh, for you to receive what God means to give you this morning, you have to have your eyes fixed upon yourself and not someone else. Listen to these words from 1 John. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There are two alternatives depicted here, an either or. We say we have no sin, or we confess our sins. If we confess our sins, then God, who is just and faithful, will forgive us. But if we say we have no sin, then we fool only one person. Do you see who we fool? Ourselves, and that's it. We've been learning through the story of King David. And this morning, we pick his story up at a moment where he is fooling himself. Last week, uh, Vito preached his story for us and showed us what it looks like to get yourself into a miserable mess because you have decided to go away from God. This morning, we're going to pick his story up where he's in that moment of self-deception and we're gonna follow it through to the point where we see how God delivers him and renews him and makes him into a new man on the other side of God's grace and forgiveness. And that process is gonna follow four steps which I'm gonna give you right up front because more than anything else, I want you to have this process that God takes people through in your mind and in your heart. Here are the steps. Confrontation, conviction, confession, and creation. You see that I worked at making them memorable, don't you? And I've done that because when you sin. Uh, not if, but when. You, you will have to decide what you do with it. And you can and you will either say, I have no sin. And then you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. And you know what's in you then? Is a lie, which when buried in that heart of yours will grow up into death. You can do that or you can say, no, I confess, and this is the pathway that I will set before each of us, and only if you are willing to look at you will God help you this morning. Otherwise, he won't. Here's David's story. Let's, let's pick his story back up, and what we're gonna see at the beginning of his story is a moment of confrontation. Okay, here's what happened leading up to the confrontation, in case you, you weren't here last week. Uh, David saw a beautiful woman and he brought her to his place and she ended up pregnant. Bathsheba was her name. To cover what he had done, he called her husband, Uriah, back from the war that he was fighting. 
to come home in hopes that he would come together with his wife and everybody would think it was his child. But Uriah has too strong a conscience. He says, I can't be with her while the rest of the troops are off fighting. And so David has to shift his plan. He puts a note into Uriah's hands, which instructs the general to put Uriah in the most dangerous part of the battle. And Uriah carries that unknowingly to his commander, and it works. Uriah and a whole bunch of other soldiers are killed, all to cover up what David has done. And it appears to work. There's a funeral for Uriah. Bathsheba mourns her husband who's died. And after some time passes, David calls her to come and live with him. And as far as he can tell, it looks like the whole thing's been wrapped up in a neat little package. I have no sin. That's what David's doing. Do you see it? Now, in this moment, what David needs is what every person who has the capacity to fool herself or himself into thinking that he's innocent before God, it's what all of us need, which is a confrontation. So look at how the 12th chapter of 2 Samuel begins. This is right after the account of David and Bathsheba. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan is a prophet, and he's a prophet who knows exactly what David has done. He knows that David is pretending to be innocent, and he also knows that God has sent him to speak the truth which David needs to hear. And he's a tactful man, so instead of just coming right into the king's uh, quarters and saying, I know what you did, he tells David a story. Uh, I'll tell it to you. You can read the story on your own in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. He, he sits down and he says this. There was a city where there were two men who lived. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man had herds and animals innumerable. The poor man had one ewe lamb. And he loved that lamb. He cared for it. He nurtured it. His children, they loved it too. One day, a visitor came to the rich man, but the rich man didn't feel like providing a meal using one of his own animals, so he went and took the poor man's ewe lamb, slaughtered that to feed his guest. David is filled with anger. How could anyone have so little pity, he says to Nathan, that rich man who would behave like that? He deserves to die. Nathan sits silently. He nods. And then he says, you are the man. Can you imagine being David in that moment? Oof. Would you open your heart just for a bit and imagine a confrontation like that where the thing that you did wrong, you'd have managed to rationalize and cover up and convince yourself that it was okay and put it aside, but then someone from God comes to shine light on what you've been hiding. In this moment, at first, David doesn't understand, but this is actually the greatest gift that he could possibly receive because if you are able to succeed in burying your sin in your own heart, it's like you've pushed a seed down in there that is going to bear the fruit of death. And it will, unless someone comes 
and confront you. In this moment, Nathan happens to be a gift from God. Does anybody in here know what the name Nathan means in Hebrew? It means gift. It's a Hebrew word for gift. God's gift in this moment is to shake David out of the place where only God can shake him out of, which is when a man has decided to call evil good. Only God can help him. But God comes to help in this moment because he loves David so much, even with his despicable behavior, that he will not leave him in the guilt and the the self-delusion that will keep him forever away from God. Would you open your heart now for a moment? Uh, If you say... If I say, I have no sin, you deceive yourself. You don't deceive the people who know you well. Do you know that? You certainly don't deceive God. The only person you're fooling is you, and you're not only fooling you. You are putting a a shell around you that will keep all of the goodness of God from breaking through. But God loves you so much. Right now, he sends his spirit for a confrontation for you. And the question is, where is your sin hiding? Where have you buried in your own heart those misdeeds, that guilt, uh, the sin that will grow up into death if you do not look at it with open eyes? Uh, Is it jealousy for you? Uh, Is it resentment? Is it hatred towards those other people who are wrong? Is it your insatiable greed? Is it your arrogance? Is it your haughty eyes looking down on others? Is it your lust turning that other person into an object? Is it your habit of misrepresenting yourself, always trying to make you look better than you are? Don't harden your hearts. You are the man. You are the woman. I need to say, I am the man. Uh, Without the confrontation that Nathan brings as a gift to David, David will be trapped in a spiritual death that will persist forever. But thank God that God loves David that much and that he loves me and you enough right now even to confront us. What is it for you? That first step of confrontation is only the first. It's a gift because it opens the door to a second step, which is conviction. Now, you must listen carefully. Conviction is grief over who you've been that drives you toward God. There's another kind of grief over who you've been that drives you away from God, feeling ashamed and afraid and wanting to retreat from him. If you have a conscience, a strong conscience, then you know what it's like to feel condemned because of who you have been. Does anyone in here know what that's like? Yeah, I tell you as a pastor, you'd be shocked at how many people who seem on the outside have it all together and even seem to be self-assured when they're honest. They know what it's like to feel condemned because of who they've been. If you're in that place right now, you are in good company. Everyone with a conscience is there. Don't press it down. Don't. There will be in you a desire to make yourself righteous. You'll fail. There'll be in you an impulse to say, well... If I have been this person, then I certainly can't be close to God. No, that's a lie. It's not the truth. What God wants to initiate 
through the confrontation that he's even bringing right now is a sense of conviction in you, not condemnation. And listen, the difference is spelled out very plainly in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Listen to how Paul says it. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret. But worldly grief produces death. Condemnation is is what produces worldly grief. It's what happens, listen to me, it's what happens when the feelings of guilt make you want to run from God because you feel ashamed and you think that God rejects you because you've sinned. That thought combined with those feelings produces death. But the truth is that God welcomes penitent sinners, that God delights in showing clemency, that God is eagerly awaiting the return of every man, every woman who has made herself, himself into a guilty mess because God's love for you is deeper than your sin and your disobedience. No matter what you've done, the grace of God holds the door open for every single person and, and conviction, which is godly grief, produces a repentance. That means a turning, a turning around that brings no regret. Uh, There'll be a voice in you that says, oh, if you let this out before God, if he knew, if the people around you who hold you accountable knew what you've done, then you should feel ashamed and they'll reject you. That is a lie. And if they reject you, you don't want anything to do with them. But God, who, who we meet in Christ, is eagerly awaiting every person who's been confronted and feels convicted to return to him and to receive the one and only one thing they need. And we know this because after David was confronted by Nathan, he wrote a prayer which shows up right in the middle of the book of Psalms. Have some of you read Psalm 51? Do some of you know that? Now's your time to show off. Yes, I know that one. If you don't know it, it's magnificent. It's the prayer which this man prays when he is confronted and then convicted, not condemned. If he were condemned, he would never have prayed this. Look at the opening words, verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. It's proof right there that he's not feeling condemned. He still knows that God's love is steadfast. You you must also know that. Listen to me. God's love for you is steadfast even now. Don't resist the conviction of the Spirit. He loves you, and his love for you is steadfast. And the thing you need is the thing that David asks for. Do you see the first words there? Look, have mercy on me. It's the one thing he needs more than anything else, and it's the thing he can be assured of more than anything else. Else, he says, according to your abundant mercy. There it is again. There's no shortage of mercy in God. Elsewhere, you read this in the book of Lamentations. His mercies are new when? Every morning, every single morning. No matter what you become today, you wake up in the morning and his mercies are new for you. And that's why David says this. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. This is a man who has been convicted and not condemned. His transgression, that means he crossed the boundary that he should not have crossed. Have you done that? His iniquity, that means he acted unjustly, twisted and crooked in his behavior. Can you see you doing that? He, he says sin, that's his departure from the right way, the way of God, missing the mark. You can look at yourself and honestly see that, can't you? What David does with 
this sense that this is who I've been is he turns toward God. Instead of pushing him further away from God, the awareness brings him to God, and that means he's been convicted. And friends, this is what God wants for you and me. He wants these words to be our words. Have mercy on me, O God. If there is any conscience that you have right now that reflects back and you see that wasn't, I shouldn't have done that. This is not who I want to be. I'm still that person. Listen, dear friends, come to God with that conviction and say these words, have mercy on me. When it happens that someone accepts uh, the, the confrontation that leads to conviction and they turn toward God, it, it's the third step in this process of divine renewal. And that is the step of confession. And really what we've got in Psalm 51 is a beautiful and vivid and raw prayer of what it looks like to confess your sins to God. Look at how David continues in verses three through five. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. This is what it looks like when someone's willing and able to accept responsibility for what he's done wrong. No more excuses, no more trying to explain it away based on extenuating circumstances, no, no uh, efforts to blame other people or escape responsibility, but when someone just says, yeah, it's me, I did it. I mean, in some ways, you can look at these and I can picture me. I hope you can do the same behaving in exactly the opposite way. Uh, I didn't do anything wrong. That wasn't me. That was somebody else. Look, it's not what I did against them. It's what they did against me. And by the way, don't hold, hold this against me. It's not fair. And, and by the way, it was my mom's fault. She did it. What, what we have here is a man who says, I know what I did. I sinned against Bathsheba. I sinned against Uriah. But ultimately, oh God, and this is what he means when he says against you and you alone, he can see that the sin against that other person is ultimately a sin against their divine creator and the God who loves them. Why is it a sin against God? Uh, because every single person that you've ever interacted with was made by God and is beloved by God. And so an aggression against anyone is an aggression against him. And what God wants is for every one of his creatures to feel the love and confidence that comes with trusting in him. And when, when David sees what he did to that other, he stands before God and says, it's me. He's accepting the truth and he's bringing his grief over it to God. And, and he's saying, you're justified in your sentence, blameless when you pass judgment because he has no more impulse to defend himself against the challenges and the charges of justice. Born guilty means there's no one back there who's to blame for this. There's no excusing my choices because I was mistreated somewhere back there. It's me and that's all. Before I was even born, I was already the man capable of this. I did it and I know it. And that is the truth. Let me tell you, you know what? This is an aside. I didn't plan this. I'm serious. Sometimes during the week, someone comes to me and they say, you know, in light of that last message, I'm carrying a real burden. It happened last week after Vito's message. And I thought, I want to say the same thing to everybody that I say to him. Which is, first of all, it's a good thing that you felt convicted. It is. It's not bad. It would be a terrible thing 
If God were someone other than who God is, if God were the one who was waiting for us to get it right before he accepted us, then we are all completely lost and hopeless. Every one of us, not just the people who are obviously bad people, but literally every person. But thank God that's not who he is. We see God most clearly in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is God with us, going to the cross for us. Why? Because he loves us. When? While we were still sinners. And so the confrontation that Nathan brought to David is truly and purely a gift. And any confrontation that happens because of this morning's message for you in your heart, whether it is because you committed adultery and you hate yourself for it, or if it's just that you're mean to your kids or your parents or your coworkers or your spouse, whatever it is, that thing buried in your heart is going to ruin you. So the Spirit confronts you, not so that you would feel condemned. Again, that's not who God is. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that means for every man and woman who lets that conviction push them to the place where they confess, they are in the arms of the Savior who loves them more than they could dare ever ask or even imagine. You, you can't know how high, how deep, how far and wide is the love of Christ unless God makes a miracle happen in your heart. And I pray that right now he does that for you. So that you, as you are able to, like David does here, confess and say, this is who I am. will find yourselves in the arms of the one, now get this, who doesn't just say, okay, I'm willing to give you another chance and let's pretend that didn't happen and try again. That's not what God does. The fourth step is creation. And that's a step where God makes every penitent sinner into a new person. You see it in verse 10. In, in his prayer in Psalm 51, where he says, create in me a clean heart and, and, I, and, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do you notice David doesn't say, look, take the dirty heart out of me, clean it off and put it back in. No, he asks for a new creation, for a new heart. He doesn't say, the things in me that are wrong, would you change them a little bit so that they're right again? No, he says, put a new spirit and a right spirit inside of me. He is asking for God to remake him from the inside out because the only thing that will put him right is to be created new again. And what God does when we come to him and ask for a new creation is he honors that request in a way that would blow our minds if we would fully grasp it. What happens when we come to God with our old selves is he, he unites us to, to Christ and so that in Christ's death our old selves are buried and then in his resurrection our new selves are brought to life so that there is a new creation for anyone, anyone who comes to God and confesses her sin, his sin sincerely. When you give your whole self to God, repenting and turning to him, he remakes you in a, in a miraculous act of divine creation and this, this is the gospel. And, and David's eyes at the start of his story couldn't see it at all. He thought that what he needed to do was keep hiding from other people and from God. But at the end of his story, we see that his eyes are changed and he knows that the way it works with God is like this. Look at all four of them again. Confrontation, that leads to conviction, that leads to confession, and that leads to creation. And, and this really is, this is the heart of the message of Jesus. Listen to me. 
You and I and the whole world, all of creation was lost in its sin, separated from God hopelessly, and God loved the world so much that he sent Christ to confront us in our sin, to come and shine a light on who we really are, but not to condemn us. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him, to convict us so that we would open up our eyes to the reality of us and not flee from, but toward God, whose grace is there to receive us no matter who we've been, so that he can hold us as we confess, as we open up the truth about ourselves to him, and not only confess our own neediness, but confess his grace to say, I believe in his grace. I trust in his mercy. I believe that he will receive me if I come to him. And when we do, well then, we are created in Christ Jesus anew. If anyone is in Christ, there is, do you know this passage? There is a new creation. Behold, everything, everything old is gone and everything is made new. That door is wide open for all of us. All of us, we should all walk through that door in our hearts right now. We should, we should thank God for who he is and flee from our old selves and embrace Christ as he makes us new again. Dear friends, the door is open for you because of the grace and mercy of God. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, he who is just and faithful will forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us and make us new again. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray, dear friends. God, we thank you so much for this morning that you've given us to be together with one another in this place. And we thank you for the way that you have spoken to us through your word. We thank you for your servant, David, who, though he was so utterly broken and unfaithful, was a witness to us and to all people of your kindness, your grace, your mercy, and your forgiveness. We thank you that you sent him the gift of Nathan to confront him with who he was, and we pray now that your spirit would continually confront each of us so that we turn toward you convicted of our sin. And I pray as we learn to practice honesty before you, no longer trying to pretend we're people that we're not, but instead confessing our true selves to you, we would also confess your faithfulness and therefore we would become a new creation in you. I thank you for all of my brothers and sisters in this room. I thank you for every single person here, for those who have been a part of the mission and ministry of this church for years, for those who are here for the first time, you have brought us together this morning to grace us and bless us with your Holy Spirit. God, help every one of us yield ourselves fully to you. Receive us, make us new. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.